You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 134, The Battle of Boundbrook. Today we return to northern New Jersey in the spring of 1777. As you recall, General Washington's Continentals attacked the outposts at Trenton and Princeton at the beginning of the year, bringing the fight back to New Jersey after the British thought they had conquered it. This kicked off the forage war that I discussed back in episode 127. The Continental fighting had re-energized the New Jersey Patriot militia to attack British or Hessian soldiers whenever they ventured out in small groups, or even some rather larger ones. The fighting made it almost impossible for the British to forage for food or fuel in New Jersey over the winter. Instead, they hunkered down in larger fortified bases and relied on supplies from New York to sustain them. The British held a few strongholds in northern New Jersey. They kept armies in Elizabethtown, Amboy, and Brunswick. While fighting the forage war and keeping an eye on the British forces, General Washington had moved the bulk of his Continental Army to Morristown, New Jersey, about 30 miles due west of New York City. From there, he could maintain a defensive position in the Wachung Mountains, he could pivot his army north if the British moved toward the Hudson River Valley, or to the south if the British moved once again across New Jersey toward Philadelphia. Washington was also struggling to keep his army in the field. Remember, the 10,000-man Continental Army that he had brought from Boston to New York had shrunk to about 2,000 just before he made the desperate attack across the Delaware River on Trenton. That victory had helped with recruiting initially and inspired a lot more militia to turn out. That said, even much of Washington's corps of dedicated soldiers from the Trenton campaign had been expected to be released at the end of 1776 when their enlistments expired. Washington and his officers had inspired many of them to stay on for a short time by pleading with them and convincing the majority that their service for just another month or two was of critical military importance. Their willingness to stick it out for a couple of months allowed Washington to fight the Second Battle of Trenton, the Battle of Princeton, and lock down the British for several months of the Forage War. By March, though, even these extended enlistments had ended. Many of the men had begun to leave by late January. The two armies were not in active large-scale combat, and many of these soldiers were more than ready to go home. Many of the final holdovers from 1776 had left the army. Washington realized he needed a large professional army, as large as the British force, or preferably larger. To get that army, 
Washington needed to overcome pushback among many Americans against this idea. Large standing armies of paid soldiers under long-term enlistments smacked of tyranny for many patriots. They preferred a militia army where civilians would take up arms when needed but then go back to their lives. This assured the people that the army could not become a tool of oppression because the army was the people. The reality, though, was that during this time of war, the militia simply couldn't cut it. They were not as reliable, not as well-trained, and would often leave when they were most needed after their short-term enlistments expired. Washington finally convinced Congress to give him a professional army, and a huge one at that. He got Congress to authorize an army of 75,000 Continental soldiers for 1777. Now, there was no way he was going to get an army that was actually that size. But that was the goal at the time, and it was a massive buildup for the army. Washington also wanted an army that was trained, disciplined, and would remain under arms for the multi-year campaigns ahead. Congress offered sizable enlistment bonuses for a three-year enlistment. It also promised free land to those who volunteered for the duration of the war. These enticements, along with the American victories in New Jersey, inspired a new group of recruits that gave Washington over 11,000 Continentals at his command by spring. Another 17,000 militia were also available in the region for Washington should he need them. While growing in numbers, the army under his command still had little training or combat experience. As I said, most of the soldiers who fought at Boston or in the New York campaign had gone home. These were new, inexperienced replacements that were filling the ranks. Even many who had just fought in the New Jersey campaign were leaving. Washington still had no experienced professional officers capable of training and drilling the new recruits to fight like professionals. This was the beginning of the professional standing army that Washington thought he had needed since he had taken charge. And now while he had the soldiers who had committed to multi-year enlistments, those soldiers did not yet have the experience or training that he thought they needed before they could challenge the regulars on the battlefield. As winter becomes spring, a soldier's thoughts turn to fighting. Although this winter had been pretty busy, traditionally new offensives began in the spring when the weather made fighting, camping, and marching bearable for the soldiers. The problem was, no one was quite sure what the plan was for the spring offensive. As I discussed a couple weeks ago, the British commander in North America, General William Howe, did not get the reinforcements he wanted to launch multiple offensives against New England, New York, and the Middle Colonies. Instead, he was talking about taking Philadelphia. No one was actually sure, though, since they also thought he was going to have to send troops up the Hudson Valley to link up with the Northern Army, General Burgoyne would soon be leading down from Canada. London wanted at least a portion of Howe's main army available to support Burgoyne, as he moved down the Hudson Valley. Last week, we looked at the first British raid up the Hudson River on Peekskill, essentially testing continental defenses and seeing what they could do. This week, the British are going to do something similar in New Jersey, but on a larger scale. 
As I said, the British learned during the Forage War over the winter that sending out even a few hundred soldiers could invite an ambush and random attacks. An offensive in New Jersey would have to be on a larger scale. Since the British had some larger bases along the New Jersey coast further to the south, General Washington deployed several detachments that protected his main army from a southern attack. He ordered now Major General Benjamin Lincoln to bound Brook, New Jersey, along the Raritan River. Congress had commissioned Lincoln a major general in February. Before that, Lincoln was not even in the Continental Army. He had been a general in the Massachusetts militia. Lincoln was more of a politician than soldier, and had been involved primarily in supply and logistics during the Siege of Boston. He had remained in Massachusetts after the Continental Army left for New York. Lincoln had brought a supporting militia army to New York after the British had already captured most of the area. He played a role in the failed attempt to take Fort Independence, something I discussed back in episode 125. Although that mission was a failure, and General Washington heavily criticized the mission's commander, General Heath, Washington apparently came away with a good impression of General Lincoln. This was also about the same time that General Artemis Ward resigned his commission due to his age and infirmity. Ward's resignation made room for another major general from Massachusetts. Washington seemed to see some military potential in Lincoln and had recommended to Congress that he receive a commission. So, Lincoln became a major general in the Continental Army on the same day that Congress promoted four other brigadier generals to major general as well. They were William Alexander, also known as Lord Sterling, of New Jersey, Arthur Sinclair and Thomas Mifflin of Pennsylvania, and Adam Stephen of Virginia. Congress expected to increase the size of the army, and they needed more generals to command that army. In truth, they were never able to recruit as large an army as they had planned, and would end up having more generals than they needed. Perhaps more importantly, all of these new major generals, as I have said before, had been junior to Brigadier General Benedict Arnold, and had nothing close to his fighting record. As I discussed a few weeks ago, these promotions had almost led to Arnold's resignation. Lincoln was one of those politician generals that particularly irked combat generals like Arnold. Lincoln had done almost nothing beyond a support role as a militia officer. He had only played a role in assisting the commander at the failed assault on Fort Independence. Now, he was joining the army as a major general. It's probably also worth noting that Lincoln was the only American officer outside of that first group at the founding of the Continental Army to join the Continentals at that level. The village of Boundbrook, New Jersey, was Lincoln's first command as a Continental officer where he was not directly under the supervision of Washington. Initially, Lincoln commanded a force of about a thousand infantrymen and an artillery unit to provide defensive support. His primary mission was to protect three bridges across the Raritan River that the British might use for a southern attack on Morristown against Washington's main army. By late March, though, expiring enlistments had reduced Lincoln's force by half to about 500 men. Most of those were Pennsylvania men who had seen little combat so far. 
over in Brunswick, New Jersey, British General Charles, Lord Cornwallis, was itching to do something. In December, he had just been about to get on a ship back to London, where he was looking forward to time with his wife and children and chatting with top officials in London about the war. Instead, General Howe got word of Washington's attack on Trenton and sent Cornwallis at the head of an army to deal with it. On the one hand, Howe's decision to send Cornwallis, rather than the far more senior general, Henry Clinton, indicated that Cornwallis was a rising star. On the other hand, Cornwallis spent most of his winter chasing around New Jersey and accomplishing rather little, rather than enjoying time back in England. This was not really what he wanted. A year earlier, Cornwallis had begun his American adventure under General Clinton. His forces had attempted and failed to capture South Carolina's Fort Moultrie on Sullivan's Island in Charleston Harbor, something I discussed back in episode 96. Shortly after that, Cornwallis had impressed General Howe with his leadership at the Battle of Long Island and his work pushing the Continentals out of New York. As Generals Clinton and Lord Percy were getting pushed aside, Cornwallis was taking a more prominent role under General Howe's overall command. Over the winter, Cornwallis had chased Washington down to Trenton, only to see the Continentals slip around him and attack the British rear at Princeton. And then for the rest of the winter, Cornwallis sat mostly on defense, trying to protect his soldiers during the Forage War and making sure the Americans did not take another outpost like they had at Trenton. It was an irritating and frustrating winter for the British generally, and for Lord Cornwallis in particular. As the weather began to warm and the rivers melted, Cornwallis wanted to start doing something more like a strategic offensive. With intelligence that Lincoln's army at Boundbrook had shrunk and was somewhat isolated from the main army, Cornwallis planned a day raid that would capture Lincoln's army. The British could toss them into New York prison ships and claim a quick victory to begin the spring campaign. As early as February, Cornwallis had asked Hessian Jaeger captain Johann Ewald to develop a plan to take the Continental Force at Boundbrook. Since the plan required fording the river, they did have to wait until spring to implement it. In April, Cornwallis assembled a force of about 4,000 British and Hessian soldiers. A force of Hessians under the command of Colonel von Donop would assault one of the bridges directly. Major General James Grant would command another group of British and Hessians on the right flank to threaten the Continentals from another direction. Cornwallis himself would take yet another brigade on the British left flank. They would ford the Raritan River upriver and prevent the Continental retreat in that direction. Another group of several light infantry companies would move north of the area to cut off the road from Boundbrook back to the main Continental Army at Morristown. With four separate forces coming at them from different directions, the Continentals would be trapped and would have to surrender. On the night of April 12, 1777, the British and Hessian armies prepared themselves for a night march so that they could hit the enemy before dawn on the morning of the 13th. Ewald's small force at the center was the first to engage the enemy. Their goal was to draw the attention of the enemy 
while Vandana moved in from another direction to surprise the defenders. Ewald's men, however, were overly enthusiastic. They chased back the American sentries to the main lines where they ran into Continental artillery. In doing so, this small advance group found themselves almost surrounded by the Continentals. Now, fortunately for Ewald, von Dunham and Cornwallis both appeared with their forces from other directions before the Continentals could focus on capturing Ewald. Instead, the Continentals had to run for their lives. General Lincoln had to flee along with his small army in a hurry. He lost all of his papers and personal property as he ran from the field. Colonel von Dunham later reported that he thought Lincoln must have fled in his underwear since they found his uniform still in his tent. The Pennsylvania artillery put up a sustained defense as it covered the retreat of the Continental Infantry. As a result, the artillery suffered the bulk of the battle casualties as well as the loss of its field guns to the enemy. The Americans were fortunate that the British Light Infantry deployed to cut off their escape up the road toward Morristown, was late getting into place. This delay allowed the bulk of the Continentals to escape. The actual fighting was over pretty quickly. The Americans suffered somewhere between 30 and 60 killed or wounded. Accounts differ. The British also captured 80 or 90 prisoners. And the British only suffered a few wounded by the American defenders. Up at his command in Morristown, General Washington received word of the attack by mid-morning. He quickly authorized a counterattack under the command of Major General Nathaniel Greene. Washington feared the British might continue up to Morristown and attack his main army there. Of course, Cornwallis had no such intent. This was meant to be a short one-day raid. By 11.30 a.m., the British collected their prisoners, the captured guns, and had begun their march back to their base at Brunswick. By the time Green's forces made it to Boundbrook, his soldiers found the last of the British rearguard trying to cross the Raritan River. A short skirmish resulted in eight British dead and 16 captured. The Continentals occupied Boundbrook again that same afternoon. Now, the battle was technically a British victory. Cornwallis captured the town, along with a few prisoners and some supplies, as he had hoped. Widely varying reports indicate that in total, somewhere between 40 and 120 of the 500 Continentals at Boundbrook were killed, wounded, or captured. The British only reported seven wounded in the battle itself. They lost another eight killed and 16 captured in the rearguard action that the Continentals fought following their withdrawal. Cornwallis's main objective, though, was to capture the entire American force at Boundbrook. This failed because the British did not cut off the escape route by the time the attack began. Most soldiers, including the commander, General Lincoln, were able to escape even if the retreat was panicked and disorganized. Following the battle, General Washington directed his officers to improve the defenses against another attack. General Greene surveyed the area and reported back that there was no good way to defend against another large British attack. Washington also provided more reinforcements to the Southern Detachment so that they would not be so outnumbered if attacked again. However, that did not solve the problem that the Southern force was still isolated and exposed. 
if the British wanted to launch another raid, the force there could still be vulnerable as it was separate from the main army. Therefore, it was still subject to being surrounded. More importantly, if Washington had to deploy more of his army to back up the force at Boundbrook, the British could just send an even larger offensive army. Washington would risk the capture of a continental force of perhaps thousands because they did not have the natural protection provided by the Wachung Mountains. That was why Washington did not have his main force there in the first place. That is why he set up at the Wachung Mountains in Morristown. After several weeks of evaluation and debate, Washington, in late May, pulled back the southern flank of his army to Middlebrook. Although not that far away from Boundbrook, the Middlebrook location gave soldiers a natural defensive position in the Wachung Mountains. From those heights, they would be better able to see the approach of an enemy army. The British would be able to cross the Raritan River unopposed, but then they would have to challenge the Continentals in their mountain defenses. As it turned out, these moves would not be an issue. The British sat out the entire month of May and June without any significant activity in New Jersey. Washington had the time he needed to adjust his defenses. After Washington's forces made the move to Middlebrook, the British would make one more thrust into the area in late June, but I'll get into that in a future episode a few weeks from now. Before we get to those events, a couple of weeks after the raid on Boundbrook, the British would launch another raid against Danbury, Connecticut. For that story, you will need to wait until next week when I discuss, you guessed it, the Danbury Raid. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. I want to give another big thank you to Mike Hager, for his support of the show on Patreon as a Robert Morris Circle supporter. That is the highest level of Patreon support available. Mike and other Patreon supporters help make this show possible and freely available for the rest of us. Mike, as well as my new supporters, Travis Omps and Stephen Combs, who joined at the standard bearer level, 
will be receiving their monthly Revolutionary War flag magnets this month, as do all my Patreon supporters at the $10 or higher level. Becoming a supporter on Patreon for as little as $2 a month is a great help to me and to the podcast with keeping up expenses. On another note for my Patreon supporters, through your Patreon account, you have access to a commercial-free version of all American Revolution podcast episodes available on a private RSS feed. I am also now trying to release episodes to my Patreon supporters a day ahead of release to the general public. So if you can't wait for the next episode, that is a way to get it a bit earlier. Of course, that is dependent on my having the episode ready to go before general release day, but I have been getting pretty good about that lately. Today, I talked about the British raid on Peekskill, New York. Now, this was a fairly minor raid, but it marked the beginning of the spring offensives that were outside of the forage war that had raged all winter in New Jersey. The British sometimes referred to 1777 as the year of the hangman, in part because the sevens in the numbers of the year looked a bit like the scaffolding for a hangman's noose, but also because they thought this was the year they would finally crush the rebellion and hang all the rebel leaders. The clash at Peekskill, as I said in the main episode, was fairly inconsequential by itself, but for British leaders it should have stood out as a harbinger of things to come. There were not countless Tories, even outside of New England, that were waiting to rise up and join the British. Rather, wherever regulars marched, they had to be prepared to face hostile resistance. The Patriots might not be able to prevent the regulars from going wherever they wished, but they could make their lives miserable with continual harassment, especially attacks on smaller parties that separated from the main army. I don't have any good book recommendations that focus just on the Peekskill Raid, so this week I want to recommend a more general book that I have been using. It's called The War of the Revolution by Christopher Ward. This is a two-volume set that goes through the entire Revolutionary War, covering both major and minor events of the war. As Ward says in his introduction, this is not about the American Revolution. It is about the war caused by the revolution. The book is focused on the battles and military movements of the war. It's a good, concise summary of the entire war, with plenty of good descriptions of both large and small battles. I have the old two-volume set, but there is a newer printing that has the entire work in one volume. Altogether, it's about 900 pages, not including notes and index. The book's appendix includes some pretty great first-hand accounts from various battles. Although the book was first published in 1952, the author was born in 1868. Ward was a corporate lawyer in Wilmington, Delaware. In his 60s, he began writing several history books, including one about the Swedes who first settled in Delaware and another about the Delaware Continental Line during the Revolution. He died in 1942, leaving his unpublished manuscript. Professor John Alden of Duke University years later edited and completed the work for publication in 1952, long after Ward's death. 
If you're looking for a good read that focuses on the war itself, and specifically the land battles of the Revolution, and that covers the entire war, and you don't want to wait more years for Rick Atkinson to finish Volumes 2 and 3 of his work, then Christopher Ward's The War of the Revolution is a good pick for you. My online recommendation this week is another ebook called Cockpit of the Revolution, The War for Independence in New Jersey by Leonard London. This ebook focuses on the war in New Jersey, primarily the years 1776 to 1778, when New Jersey was the focal point for most of the fighting. Although first published in 1940, it is apparently out of copyright and available on archive.org as a free download. If you are particularly interested in the New Jersey aspect of the Revolution, then London's book, Cockpit of the Revolution, is a good one for you. You can search for it on archive.org, or as always, I have links to all my recommendations on my website, amrevpodcast.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.